0: Today I welcome George Davison, Head of School at Grace Church School in New York. In this episode, I discuss the challenges of leading a school for three decades. Is there an art to teaching, defining next-gen skills, brokering a debate on race, and the legacy of a retiring head? Let's begin with the end in mind. In June, you'll be leaving Grace Church School for a new phase of life after spending 35 years at the school. That is a long tenure for anybody. You obviously fell in love with the school, you loved the school, and it's been a place where you've obviously got your identity and your legacy that's going to be there. With the last 20 years, 28 years as head of school, what advice would you give to new heads looking to go into headship? And do you think long term headships like the one you've had are going to be normal moving forward?
1: In reverse order, I would say, I think I am a bit of a unicorn. And there was a time about 15 years ago where I thought I should go look for another school and that that was the better thing. And I was able in the context of this job to have the headship radically changed when we opened the high school division. So I went from running a small JK through eight elementary school to developing a nine through 12 program, which was thrilling, to running a larger K-12. So I was able to actually sort of work at two different schools in that period. I think that most school heads, and it's probably healthier if they start at the same age I did, uh, would be at two or three different schools. And that's good for the schools and good for them. Back to what advice do I give to people who are going to be ahead of school? This is the best job you can ever have. It's 95% pure fun and 5% pure terror. And there's sort of nothing in between. But at that ratio, it's really fantastic. And it's never a dull moment. There's always something new. You know, I mean, who knew I'd be an expert on a pandemic, right? Um, And epidemiology. Who knew that I would be an expert on geotechnical engineering in Manhattan? Those are just two skills I had to pull out yesterday. And so you get, to, you get to do all these different things. It's really fun. And The other really f- interesting and funny thing about it is that by virtue of office, you're sprinkled with some form of pixie dust where really high-powered, intelligent adults defer to you because you are the principal, you are the head of school. And these are people who are geniuses. They're very successful in what they're doing. But because you have this office, it gets sprinkled on you and you go forward. The other piece of advice I would give them is to remember, given that, you're not so special. There's a great quote from the book of Micah, which is, what does the Lord ask of you? And the answer is, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. You have to do that every day. Because if you let the fact that you had pixie dust sprinkled on you go to your head, that is going to cause you to have a major fall.
0: And schools are always full of fun, um, inspiring stories, inspiring moments, because you know, you've got these young men and women, these kids that are coming through, and you just get to see them changing and blossom as they go through your school. So there was, I mean, you can see why it's a great job, but 28 years, a lot has changed. What's the biggest thing to you and the most notable change you've seen from an educational point of view and maybe also from a, a kind of a lifestyle, a, a learning
1: point of view? Kids, uh, humans haven't really changed in the way they learn. And in fact, when we first created schools, all we were worried about is getting people to read and calculate. We went at it in a way that was not consistent with the way people learn. That's why so few of the population were were educated up to the beginning of the 20th century. And when the Western societies decided that they had to scale up education for universal compulsory education, they had to find a different way to do it. And that's where I mean, you've got John Dewey, but that's where Dewey comes in. And that's where we continue to look at different ways of getting to the point of education and to broaden the way in which we teach, to make it more accurately to reflect the way humans learn, bring more of the visual realm into the way in which humans learn. The biggest revolution over the last 35 years is that we can use visual imaging In so much more of a sophisticated fashion in the context of the classroom than we used to. When I started teaching, I had my pockets full of chalk. If I was very active, I might have two or three different colors of chalk, but I'm not great at it. Then we went to whiteboards where we had markers and we could do more things with markers. The ability, the the first smart boards, the ability to project um, sophisticated. Well organized images that are dynamic into a classroom that mimic the way in which kids are learning enhances the delivery of of information and the learning of skills in a way that makes it possible to be much more effective in reaching more and more humans. So, the biggest change is that, you know, I was just with the head of our childhood and lower school math department as she was explaining to parents the way in which she teaches subtraction which you and I learned as a, you know, just a, an algorithm or, you know, it had no meaning. It was like, you know, take this, cut it in half, take that, it was just a pile of symbols that created another answer, boom, which was meaningless. And how she creates visual images which are spatial and show what's going on. Because arithmetic is about spatial and temporal change and the algorithm is not. But now it's being taught effectively as spatial change in a way where kids who are better visual reasoners than they are um, symbolic reasoners are able to take it in. And we have the tools to make that happen. The other interesting piece is, of course, the kids have to learn more than we did. So we have to be much more efficient with the way in which we teach in order for them to learn all of the things that they have to learn. So that's the long-winded answer on on what's the biggest change.
0: And a lot has changed. And, you know, you think back really to the last 28 years, but then you just go back two years, the amount of incredible change that's gone on. So, you know, and this, is, and this is probably a good time to step out anywhere of school because, you know, it's just exponential with the rate of technology and everything else. But you spend much of your headship building a community where school breaks out. What does that mean?
1: What that means is that people, if you want to optimize learning, what are the things that you need to optimize learning? Learning by itself is a stressful act for kids, for all of us, right? Because what are we asking people to do? We're asking them to change. Change is stressful, right? We're asking them to change their perspective. We're asking them to change the way in which they go about understanding things. So if you're going to affect change, you have to build a comfort level for the people who are are going through that change, the change links. And so at that moment they have to feel safe. They have to feel that they belong. They have to feel connected. And in a true community, everybody has a common sense of value. You feel safe. So as you build community and you make the school the primary community for the family, uh, not just for the kids, we don't believe in you drop your kids at the door and we'll take care of them. We believe that there is a dynamic and mutually supportive relationship between the family and the school, and where the adults and the kids are part of that same community. We are the place that they identify with. And in the context of that, we satisfy a couple other needs besides school. Belonging is one, meaning is another. And that's the advantage that we have as an Episcopal school is that we can talk about meaning, and we can talk about how your life is related to the broader goals of the world, You know, it's not just about you, it's about a broader set of values. And so we create opportunities for the families to be part of the learning process. This is what I was just talking about today, that if it weren't for COVID, this would be the second grade math breakfast. But because of COVID and the fact that everybody has to wear a mask, we can't offer food while we bring parents in with their kids to basically celebrate what the kids are learning in math. Right, so that this is a shared endeavor. There are multiple occasions in the context of the school year that bring families and students together. And when you have a sense of community, of shared purpose, of shared experience, then you have students and families that believe in what you're doing. And that enhances the learning of the students and makes it more fun. I love
0: that concept of bringing everyone together and obviously schools all around the world bring in and have events, but making parents part of it, I think is a really critical difference because, you know, right now with technology, with lives being 24 seven, you know, we're kind of at this point now where parents just don't have the time, right? We're so consumed everywhere else is that we neglect to feel that we can be present even in our kids' education, that's what I see when I speak to other heads and when I even think about my own life and my four kids in four schools. You know, Giving them enough attention to be able to get in there is difficult. And so it's almost like I abdicate it and go, you know, uh, George, great school. I'm, I'm going to send my kid in there and you're just going to do that. And I hope that they're going to come out with everything that I need in terms of values, skills, optimism. Do we need to be doing more with that parent engagement piece?
1: One of the things that we do is we try to make sure we have all of the kids in the school. We're a co ed school, which makes that easier. If you are committed to single sex education philosophically and you have boys and girls as your children, you're not going to be able to do that. But as a co ed school and a school that really strongly favors bringing siblings in, a school that has as its sort of pedagogy that it's our job to adjust how we teach. To how the students learn as individuals in, in the context of the group, we have a little bit more range in what we're doing so that we can handle a range in, in the context of different siblings. You know, anybody who has four kids knows that even from the same genetic package, uh, living in the same home, you get very, very different kinds of learners in the kids. But our attempt is, as, and there, there are limits to that, of course, But our attempt is to try to make sure that we can accommodate different kind of learners in the context of every family. So it's easier for you to not say, I got to send them to four different schools. I have one school. This is the one I'm worried about. This is the one place, you know, and I'm going to go to the second grade barbecue and I'm going to go to the third grade math breakfast and I'm going to go to the fourth grade Odyssey play and I'm going to be there and I'm going to be able to be and experience all these things. You develop a trust relationship then with a series of adults in the context of your child's education, and you you repeat them, right? So that if you have four kids, you may not have the same teacher in third grade or ninth grade for each kid, but all of the central people in the lives of your children are there and are constants. And that helps you feel like I am part of this. It belongs to me. When the kids ask me who owns the school, I say to them, well, you do. And your grownups do. And the teachers do. This is a not-for-profit. Nobody owns this. We all own it. It belongs to you and you belong to it. And that's our goal. And getting that level of parent engagement is our secret sauce. And we really sort of proved it out last year. Because of COVID, we had to say no parents in the building. And we had to strip away all of the community events. And we had to get rid of the things that like the second grade math breakfast that bring people together. And we were nowhere near as effective as we were before. And as we're being this year, we can really see it. And in December, there was pressure to close school two or three days before the break because Omicron was coming. And we had all of these community events lined up right before the break. And we said, no, we've got to do them. And we got them all in, which was fabulous. And they were so important to the sense of belonging, connection, and well being. And that's from the four-year-olds to the 19-year-olds?
0: Humans need to be with humans. You know, for all that the last two years has shown us is that technology is an enabler and it allowed us to carry on pre-digital, pre-internet. The wheels would have fallen off education. There's no question. So we've managed to get by, but there's absolutely no substitute for human-human interaction because it's a feeling, right? It's, it's when you're in a room with people, you feel it. I've had the same with my business. You know, we employ 50-plus people. And when you don't have 50 plus people in an office for an extended period of time, it's very difficult. And you notice the electricity when people get together, the spark that you have. And that is something that we've just got to get back to and I hope as as soon as possible. And I suppose it leads me on to the next question about kind of inspiring teachers, because not all teachers are inspiring. You know, we, we all remember those ones that made a significant difference to our kind of early choices and decisions and where we stand today. But that is an art form, isn't it? And you can't necessarily get everyone to be inspiring, get good teachers who can teach to learn. But how do we get
1: teachers to inspire? There are personality types, obviously, who are better performers. One of the art forms of teaching is performance art, the ability to project your passion, your knowledge, as if you were on a stage but we're not a sage on the stage. We're guides in the group. And there's a certain amount of technical knowledge. So the real key is that teachers need to have those performance skills. They have to have deep empathy and understanding for where the students are. Each kid has a different learning profile. Each teacher, no matter how malleable they are, has a a distinct teaching profile. And so in order to make sure that every student is inspired, you have to have complementary teachers on your team so that you need to have that serious history teacher who you know loves to talk serious lectures and treats the kids as if they were in a college seminar and makes them write the 10-page papers and is you know fantastically interesting and also have that same grade have a history teacher who loves projects who creates gaming, who takes them on trips because some kids are inspired by the first one and some kids are inspired by the second. And so you have to have both of those in the context of your departments. And one of the mistakes schools make is saying, this department is all going to follow exactly the same thing, which means that kids who don't match that particular style will not be interested in that discipline. Whereas if you have this range of teachers and you provide kids with choice, there are things they need to know, but at some point you provide them choice, they will gravitate towards the teacher who matches them most closely. And that's the person that inspires them. I think that's the real method.
0: It maps to the real world, right? And and, and showing variety and breadth, because we meet people in all shapes and sizes and personalities and the way they work. And you, you rub with some, you gel with others. That's just life. So getting it early on, I've never thought it it that way, but it makes sense. But that also throws up another question regarding you know, how do you recruit like that? That's like planned recruitment. It's, you know, I've already got that serious history teacher. We don't want another two of them because suddenly we're going to be pigeonholed and we're not going to get that breadth. Does that become more difficult to recruit into?
1: Yeah, it takes more time. But you also put together, we do all of our hiring in teams, and you put together a team that knows what we're missing and what we're looking for. And they take the time. And ultimately, it's the decision of the head of school whether to hire or not hire. But when you get to a certain size, you can't be at the ground floor level interviewing every person. You have to have the key people agree with that philosophy, identify what the needs are, have it a very clear sense of this is what we're looking for for filling this position. It's not possible to necessarily find exactly who you want. But if they're close enough, you can then teach them to what you want. The other piece that you put in is you have a lot of professional development training, resources, and support available. You know, the assistant head of school who's going to be my successor, when we hired him, I said, you're in charge of professional development, and you are the only person on the management team that is given full permission to exceed your budget number. Because if you exceed your budget number, that means you're doing your job really well. Well, last year, nobody would go to professional development. So he said, am I fired? Because, because it's only just one third of my money. I said, no, no, we need your, We had to pay all these extra people. We need that money anyway. So, but that's the key. Nobody is a perfect teacher. Everybody has to keep getting better. Everybody has to keep doing professional development training. Everybody has to keep up with how their discipline is changing. But if they have performance, strength, good sense of humor, you can build from there
0: all of these different kind of traits, you know, the great American educational philosopher, John Dewey, you mentioned earlier, described a teacher as an artist, a gardener, a composer, and a social engineer. They have to wear so many different hats. And, you know, and we look at then how innovations and technology is shaking up education, because the world is this exponential change, what we see with technology, but behavior too. What you are the guiding elements for effective teaching in this modern world with
1: technology? I would use the term, which I use often, flexible consistency. You have to consistently apply a seriousness towards academic excellence and communicate that to your students. But you have to be flexible in the way in which you implement that so that you match where they are, you match what their experience is, You know, Dewey's key point was that if education doesn't match experience, it's not relevant. And experience changes over time. The fact is that 35 years ago, kids didn't play video games. That wasn't part of their experience. So it wasn't part of the vernacular of teaching them. It is a constant in their experience. It affects the way in which they think. And so you have to be able to respond to that mode of thinking. You have to be flexible around it. At the same time, they need to know how to write a classic 10-page essay. Because writing is something you need to know how to do. doesn't matter what you want to be in life. You could be an actor, an architect, or an astronaut. Those are just the A's. You have to learn how to write. And so we're going to make sure that when they leave this school, they are effective writers. But we have to understand that they're also gamers. And the way in which we go about teaching them has to reflect that that's their reality. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring
0: Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And how do you map kind of these next generation skills as a school leader? Do you, is there some think tank you're part of? Do you, do you model yourself on the employers and other companies are saying, look, th- this is what the world is going to need. And then do you start to bring that into your own school and go, look, these are the next generational skills we're going to need to start to embed in school?
1: I don't think anybody knows what the next gen skills are. They're going to change. And the other thing um, that you have to realize is that our kids now, basically all of them are not just 21st century people. They're 22nd century people. They're going to live into the 22nd century. Um, So we have no idea what the key skills are going to be. Pretty comfortable saying um, our next gen skills are that there are things you need to know, right? Um, There's a salient amount of information that needs to be passed on, right? And you don't have to discover that. You have to be literate. You have to be numerate. You have to be scientifically literate. All of those things, we know that. At the same time, people who are going to be successful in the next generation are going to be people who can work collaboratively over difference to generate new products, new concepts, new ideas. So collaboration skills are a next gen skill. And, you know, not every school teaches that, you know, we believe in collaborative work and other schools believe in competitive, that it's about individual achievement and competition. We believe in a constructivist collaborative view, because we think that's something you have to do. You have to start learning that at the age of four. You can't learn that at the age of 24, right? If your school place is not one where you share with each other in order to solve a common problem, then you're not going to be ready to do that when you get out of school. You have to be able to work over difference, right? The world is full of different people. If you're not comfortable working with people who are different from you, then you're not going to be successful. That's not going to happen. And creative and generative, right? So you have to be at the author of the solution, not the receptor of the algorithm, right? That's what we're talking about in third grade math, right? The kids have to be problem solvers. And so we're doing more and more problem-based learning, whether that's Young kids or, you know, we don't do AP exams. They're mediocre. They limit the ability to do that. What we call AT bio is around identifying a problem, advanced topics, and figuring out what the solution to that problem will be as a group and using available technologies to do that. If we put them in AP bio, they're just going to learn a set of facts that's not going to prepare them to be creative and generative. It's the way in which you teach, the way in which you build on it, that you're going to do those skills. As long as you have those skills, the world changes. You're going to work with other people to respond to that change. You're put into a different situation with different kinds of people. You're comfortable with that. Um, You're going to be able to respond. If you're always looking for the solution in a creative way, and you're not saying, well, we've always done it this way, you're going to be more successful. And that's at the heart of what we think are next generation skills.
0: I also think when we look at the alpha generation, the millennials who grew up with technology. They seem to it polar opposites. And there's this little paradox to me where they are very self-indulged and selfish and they want that social recognition and influence. And then we've got this other very vocal group who care about people, the planet, right, beyond themselves, this sense of service. And I don't think we've ever seen that so much in a generation so quickly is that something you can manage at a school and help facilitate their understanding how do you bring the two poles together so you know we're not polarizing people to kind of go one or the other
1: i will say to you that we have more of the latter than the former in the context of our school uh, so i'm not necessarily expert on that the the beauty of being a school like ours which is tied to a faith system is that People gravitate to us because meaning and meaningful action are cornerstones to who we are. In our mission statement, we say that we want to develop people who have an active ethical consciousness. And that's a mission statement that was written in 1990. And an active ethical consciousness is not just, I'm a nice person. An active ethical consciousness is, I am a person who is going to act upon ethical principles to make a difference in the world and for others. So we have, even among the millennials, more of those than the other type. We don't necessarily have that disagreement about goals. We will have disagreement about means, and that's normal and that's healthy, right? The organization that's not busy figuring out how to get better is busy getting worse. So if people disagree, this isn't the best way to do that, there's a better way to do that, that's a good thing. That's where our our disagreements come from. The fact is that millennials look at the boomers and say, you didn't do it right, you know, get out of the way. Well, I'm, I'm sort of getting out of the way. And we say, no, you know, we, we actually brought things forward to a certain point. The society, human nature, none of this is perfectible. I agree with Dr. King. The arc of history bends to justice, but the human, by definition, is imperfect. And we are working to ameliorate that situation, but we're never gonna get to the point. I don't agree with Buddha. I don't think we can, nobody can get to enlightenment. The fact is that we're always working on it, and we're always finding ways to get to these common goals. And if you're going to work collaboratively over difference, you have to hear and listen in order to be truly creative.
0: And the point of difference, you know, schools across the USA are addressing legacies of past racism. How can elite schools such as ourselves create spaces where all types of identity can flourish?
1: Again, we have a somewhat of an advantage in the context of our pedagogy, because We have always said we have to treat kids as individuals in the context of the group, right? So that, yes, there are group aims, but everybody has individual needs. We've also said that in order for you to be successful here at the school, you have to feel that it belongs to you and you belong to it. So we have been constantly building structures that allow that to happen. Now, race is probably the most difficult question that we deal with in America. And we received our fair share of criticism last year. And from both sides, we then sat down and said, okay, how can we do this better? The goal is that everyone have a clear sense of belonging, a clear sense of purpose, a clear sense of meaningful action, and are feeling safe enough as I said earlier, to be effective learners because they got to learn these things and learn the things they need to know and the things they need to know how to do. We pulled together a disparate group of people and said, okay, we've been doing this in lots of different venues, whether it's gender or sexuality or learning style difference, but race is complicated. So let's talk about race and let's come together around what it is important. And so we put together a task force of people with different views of getting to that same point and said, here, what's the Grace way of doing this? And I think we're not the only ones. I'm not necessarily a spokesman just for Grace. I think that people across the independent school movement have been saying the reason we're independent is that we can identify who we are and what our objectives are and how we're gonna go about it in a way that all of our community supports it. And so we have the advantage of respectful dialogue that comes from the fact that we're opt-in communities. Some of the the real tough stuff that's been happening in the country in public school districts are because they're not opt-in communities. Everybody's paying the taxes. The school belongs to everybody in the community. And there's political division in the context of the community. But that community isn't a tight community the way ours can be a tight community. It's a catchment area for a school. And they're not necessarily people who agree with each other to be there because it's not opt-in. We've had that advantage, and so I can say to you that that I've been even though there are tough moments in this job, that five percent, I've been blessed by a community that believes in the mission and opted into the mission and understands that mission.
0: Missions are critical for schools and organizations. people need to it can't just be something that's written on your letterhead and it's it's on the wall and it feels like it's corporate governance. it needs to be something that lived and breathed within the school, and everybody has to do that. And so the more that you do adopt your mission and it becomes embedded in the authentic part of being, I think that value system you talked about, that belief system, you meet common ground much quicker and easier because you are on this shared mission. It's when you come and there isn't any shared mission, you find that things do come from polarized places and that getting to that middle is always going to be difficult. Just quickly, our final thing just around the dialogue around race, because You know, I've read that too often that schools that are promoting this open dialogue around race appear to be threatened by this backlash or targeted as woke. Is that just because of the communities that they service, that they are more polarized? Or is it because they do not have a belief system and an entry point where they're looking for common interest?
1: I'm not an expert on necessarily the political process that got us to woke. Let's remember that the way in which that developed last spring was to promote a political goal that had nothing to do with schools. And the people who created that firestorm did so and succeeded in winning the governorship of the state of Virginia by doing it. But they have also started backing off because they're also free speech people. What they had created was essentially a book burning and book banning political culture that has nothing to do with us as independent schools and so that's inimical to the some of the libertarian views that the people who created this political movement you can't you can't say that you are in favor of open dialogue and then say we're banning speech that's what they were asking people to do at the public school level that wasn't what was affecting our communities some independent schools were hit worse than others if their mission statement is more about, we're just going to give these kids the education that gets them into the best colleges, then that was more subject to being sort of divided. You weren't explicit about the other parts. Those of us who have a mission that extends way beyond that, that wasn't the issue for us as much. The issue for us when people said, are, are these terrible things happening at your school was, no, they're not. Let me show you how they're not happening and that they're not happening. And that what we're doing is promoting these next-gen skills of being able to collaborate over different generative and creative ideas. And that's where we were successful in sort of holding the line on that, keeping the unity of our community.
0: And it's having respectful debates. That in itself is is a skill. As we reach the end of our conversation, I want us to look to new beginnings. You're retiring at the end of this school year. What do you want your legacy to be?
1: You know that the first and most important job of a head of school when they take over is like the doctor. Do no harm, right? And do not take what was so precious in terms of the community spirit, the commitment to kids to learn who they are and as they are, and to maintain that. I believe I've succeeded. And I've succeeded... At the same time, in building the school into a much stronger, uh, much larger, and a much more well-respected member of the independent school community in the nation. And I will tell you that very few people in their careers get the opportunity to create an entirely new model of something that's been in existence for hundreds of years. And that was a huge privilege. But to be able to create a high school program that approaches kids based on everything we've learned for the last hundred years has been thrilling. And to have a high school experience, which I think most of our kids, COVID aside, will say is tremendously fulfilling. Our line for them was high school is not something to be endured, it's something to to be celebrated. And it is a place where you can develop yourself. And if you develop yourself, then the next level will come to you. You know, the movie Field of Dreams, I'm a baseball fan. If you build it, they will come. And that is certainly proven out. And to have a high school program that's 10 years old, that the finest universities in the world are recruiting kids from is, is a tremendous legacy. And it's one where the kids come out with a positive self-concept, that they feel good about themselves as people. And to have that at the center of our program is a huge legacy, and I'm proud of it. And the fact that this whole school continues to do that, and I'm so excited about the person they've chosen to be my successor and the way in which that person is filling out the admin team for the next generation that really looks like they're doing a great job.
0: It's a relay race, you know, like, like we are with our kids. You know, We hand the baton down and we hope we equip them you are leaving a big, you know, some big shoes to fill. You know, being there for for as long as you have done, your successor—that's a tough job for anybody. But you know, they're inheriting a school in in such great shape with such great history, but also such great future. I think it's a really exciting thing. Tell me what's next for you. So you hang up your teaching, hang up your leadership. Are you stepping away fully?
1: We're still working on the next big thing. I might do some adjunct teaching. You know, I'm sort of crafting a course. One of the things to think about is a course where I could be adjunct at a couple of different places, but it's education through the eyes of a child. A typical college semester is about 15 weeks long, and each week would be a different age. And as someone who's worked with kids from age four to age 19, to take you through that and, and have people who are interested in education, think about how is the child receiving education at each of these, and each week would be a different age area in a seminar. That's one of the things that I'm thinking of pitching as an adjunct to other places. You know, There are some NGOs that um, I'm talking to about doing some part-time work for them that are involved in the education sector. There's some not-for-profit boards that I'm going to work on. I think my wife would love to go uh, live outside of New York for a couple of years. We're at the, the right age where you can unsettle. We're in our mid-60s, and so we have our health, and um, our children have not been Active in producing grandchildren. So there's no impedimentia. And at least in the next couple of years. They may become active, but there's no sign of it right now. And uh, so, you know, go live in the UK or, uh, uh, you know, uh, go live in Aix en Provence or go wherever, right? Exactly.
0: Yeah, go wherever. And where would you go? I mean, which country would you go to? Do you feel would be a next stop for you if you could just shoot one now for me? My wife would love to
1: live in the Cotswolds.
0: So literally where we are.
1: Yeah, yeah. She would love to do that. I would love to live in a warmer area. I'd love to go live in Italy. I would love to go to places in the world where uh, I've never been, um, like Australia or like um, some parts of Southeast Asia. There are lots of uh, flexibility here. And you know, if there's a, an international school that wants a, a short-term or interim head, then I'm game for that, but not for the 22, 23 school year. There's a certain amount of uh, rest that needs. So one of my friends from the business who retired last year, I asked him, well, what are you going to do next year? And he said, nothing. So I saw him this fall. I said, how is it going? He said, I'm really good at nothing. I think that that's uh, the first thing is to
0: to rest and recharge and refocus.
1: Rest and recharge and read some more possibly do that adjunct teaching and and those kind of things.
0: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure you will. George, I've thoroughly enjoyed our time together. Thanks ever so much for the conversation. Thanks ever so much for finding the time. I know that this is going to be a great podcast. People will be inspired to listen to your story and what you've been doing. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.